Well, thank you so much for your welcome. It's always a delight to be here in Belfast and at the Crescent. Uh, I'd like to express my thanks to Scott Davison, who has looked after me so well. Nice to meet his fiancée, Sarah, as well. And for a magnificent lunch at the Cullens today, uh, Richard and Lorna. Well, I mean, some people fall asleep during a sermon, but when the preacher's going to fall asleep, you know, it's been a good, it's been a good meal. But uh, so thank you for that. And um, I bring to you uh, the love and greetings of uh, God's people at Central Baptist in Dundee. And we value uh, the links that we have. We have a lot of Northern Irish students in Central Baptist Dundee, and they add life and vibrancy and so much more to the church family there. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 4 and to the passage that was read to us tonight. This is a tale of two kingdoms and a fascinating set-piece encounter between the Savior and the enemy of souls, Satan himself. But to understand what is happening here, what we have to do is we have to helicopter up a wee bit, and we have to look back into history and set the context of what is happening here. Because in this encounter of the Lord Jesus Christ with Satan, there are echoes of Eden and of Exodus. Adam's fall, Genesis 3, and Deuteronomy references predominate in this passage. So first of all, we have those echoes, and secondly, we have the exemplar, or the example, our Lord Jesus Christ, responding to three tests in the area of physical drives, three to four, pride, five to seven, and possessions, and worship, eight to 11. And having bound the strong man, there comes the emergence of Jesus' ministry in declaration, a light has dawned, 12 to 17, and the calling of the first disciples, 18 to 22, and the demonstration of Christ's power in sign miracles, verses 23 to 25. Now, I have to say, we, we only have time to look seriously at verses 1 to 11, but it would be remiss not to look at the implications of what is happening here in verses 1 to 11. These three latter phenomena I've described to you are linked to what has happened in the desert as the gospel begins to go out and the, the people are called to submit to Christ as king and his inbreaking kingdom. And so we see the Lord Jesus here as our king and representative man who prevails over the enemy. Satan is silenced and the kingdom is coming. And although it might not seem like it all the time in our day, that reality still maintains that Christ has won the decisive victory and the, the kingdom is coming. The story is told, and I do hope that it is true, of the former world heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali on a flight. And Ali, if he's not of your generation, Ali was known for his boastfulness. He used to have a phrase which was, I am the greatest, he would say, I am the greatest. And on this flight, the steward asked him to fasten the seatbelt, to which Ali is said to have responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt, to which the steward said, Superman don't need no airplane, buckle up. 
Jesus' victory over Satan's temptations is not the final defeat of Satan, but it is a demonstration of who he is. He is not Superman, he is the God-man. He is the one that we need. He is the one who speaks to the deepest needs of the human heart. He is our representative. He is our savior. And if you come away tonight with a deeper appreciation of Jesus Christ, then the word will have done its work. Now, maybe just as we go into this, I'm always trying to think about questions that arise in people's minds about the text that I'm preaching on. And as I was thinking about this tonight, I thought perhaps there is a question in your mind about Jesus' temptation. Because some people might ask, were the temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ real? Well, we know that he is God in the flesh, therefore he cannot sin. John 8, 46, they could not find anything that he had done wrong. He said, can any of you find sin in me? And they couldn't because he was sinless. Yet Hebrews 4, 15 tells us that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So there is a sense of reality to the temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, could Jesus succumb? The answer, as far as I'm concerned, is no, because of who he is. Were the temptations real? Yes, they were. How so? Because Jesus is not only truly God, but truly human. Jesus became hungry, thirsty, tired, and tempted, just like us. He felt the weakness of his flesh, yet without sin. The difference is this that Jesus' temptations were wholly external. He did not feel that hard gravitational pull of a sinful nature, but he felt the weight of these temptations in his human nature. First of all, then echoes Eden and Exodus. I felt it was really important to emphasize this to you because there is a richness of theology to Scripture and there is a wonderful context here without which we will not fully understand what is happening here. It is so significant that in this episode in the life of Christ, his temptation, that there are clear echoes of Eden and the fall of Adam and echoes of Moses and the 40 wilderness wandering years that correspond to the 40 days of Jesus' testing. These things are echoed in the text. And this is a reminder to us that what we find here is not an isolated event, but integrally connected to all that has gone before in salvation history. And I often say this, this is something that really should encourage us as believers. It helps us to see that this story has a beginning, a middle, and it will have an end. That this is not a work of imagination. This is a work of revelation. Spurgeon wrote, you can't have a Baptist minister preaching without getting one Spurgeon note in there, can you? Spurgeon said, and I paraphrase, that from every town and hamlet in England, there is a road that leads to London, and that from every verse of Scripture, there is a road that leads to Christ, and that's what we find here. Echoes of Eden and of Exodus in the story of Jesus' temptation. First of all, then Eden, Jesus' lifelong victory over temptation, reverses the fall of Adam. Adam sinned, Jesus won through. 
Paul says that in Romans 5, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That obedience was not just here in this temptation, but through his life and to the cross where he is tempted in Gethsemane, but wins through. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul says, now the law came in order to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the whole thing through salvation history was, was stacking up, but Jesus, our champion, has dealt with it. And whilst Paul is referring to the lifelong obedience of Christ all the way to the cross, this episode that we're looking at, particularly in verses 1 to 11, is a key moment. As we look at Jesus, note, note this, we have skin in the game. We have skin in the game. It was for us he was tempted. John Henry Newman in his beautiful hymn says this, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. He's our champion. Do you see Jesus in that way tonight, that he is your champion? Because you find yourself believing in him, trusting in him, one day you are going to win through fully and be with him forever. And there are also echoes of Exodus. The quotations in the temptations bring us echoes of Exodus, that great saving act, which acts as a type and shadow of that greater salvation that will come through Christ. Deuteronomy is to the fore here. Deuteronomy is a motivational sermon by Moses as the people prepare to enter Canaan under Joshua's leadership. But the context is crucial. After 40 years, Israel are back at the eastern border of Canaan, where they had been before. 40 years after Sinai and the giving of the law. And those 40 years have been marked by periodic failure. The central section of the book of Deuteronomy 12 to 26 recites the law consistently reminding people to keep the law. But we know from history and from the scriptures that even when they were in the land, the failure continued. But the faithfulness of God will prevail on account of Abraham. And so it is so significant that Jesus deploys Deuteronomy in the context of this temptation that he faces. He is our representative man. Jesus wins through in the wilderness where Adam failed in paradise. Echoes of Eden and of Exodus. He is our exemplar. He is our example. Verse 1, look at it with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are, listen to the words here, if you are the Son of God, how dare he? How dare he 
if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Jesus is tempted around his physical drives. As we said already, Jesus became hungry, thirsty, tired, and was tempted like us. He felt the weakness of his flesh. Don't you? Don't I? This temptation, although real, was not internal but external. He did not have that gravitational pull of a sinful nature. Yet, the temptations were real. And therefore, we can say with confidence that he knows what it feels like to be tempted. He understands the power of it. After 40 days, Jesus is hungry. And the enemy seeks to exploit that natural human drive. Was it not hunger that tempted Israel to sin in the desert? Exodus chapter 16 They had no food to eat, and they started to have a go at their leader, Moses. After God had saved them, Passover, pillar of fire, Red Sea, all that stuff had happened, and yet they come to a point in the road where they face a challenge, and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. And they say to Moses, why did you bring us out in the desert to kill us? What does God do? He rains down on them. Not fire and brimstone, but manna. In the face of their need, they find God's provision. Bread from heaven. Jesus' response is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That first part, it is written, will be repeated in this text. It is like a hammer blow on the head of Satan. Jesus takes the powerful word of God and he deploys it effectively and so should we. And it's not that the bread is irrelevant, but what Jesus is saying here is that there is something more significant. And that more significant thing is the life-giving word of God. God is the creator, and by his words, he brings life where there had been none. And God said, and it was so, Genesis 1. And in Christ the word, Jesus said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, without the manna in the desert, Israel would have perished. And without Christ, the bread of heaven, so would we. So would we. And actually, so would they, because they were looking forward to Jesus. Then there is the second temptation. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you, there it is again, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God, how dare you? 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, commentators suggest to us that where Jesus was taken was uh, the, uh, the wall that faces the Kidron Valley, which was about 450 feet high. It was a huge wall, dizzying height. And Jesus is called by Satan to jump. Traditionally, this was the place where James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred. This was terrifying. So what is the temptation here? Well, the temptation is pride and presumption. Substituting faith with presumption. This is twisted scripture. Psalm 91 that is quoted by Satan is about the walk of the righteous, not the flight of the careless. We don't put the Lord to the test like this. That's an insult to him. We don't test God's care. We accept it by faith in all circumstances. And so Jesus comes back at the enemy and says, again, it is written. It is written. It is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. Again, he is deploying that key word. You see, Moses had spoken to the people and it's recorded in Deuteronomy, as they were about to enter into the land of promise after 40 years of failure, that's the context of it. And that's why these words of Moses are so important, and that's why they are deployed by our Lord Jesus Christ here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Time and time again in their wilderness wanderings, Israel had done this. Exodus 17 at Massa to which Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 points, reminds us that there was no water to drink. First of all, no food, then no water. And the people tested the Lord to the point where they said, well, is the Lord among us or not? What a thing for the people to say after the salvation that they had experienced, and yet they did. And remember, Moses is told to hit the rock, and the water flowed. God's provision again in the face of their rebellion and of their need. You know, someone said to me recently that they liked Jesus, but they weren't sure about the God of the Old Testament. My dear friend, he is one God. And he acts in grace and in love towards his people. Let's apply this person personally tonight. Let me ask you, my friends, are you trusting or are you testing the Lord? Well, the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul athirst may be gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Wherever God calls, he equips it is his provision upon which we depend. 
And then there is the third temptation. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, to, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Oh, what a thing. What, 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 what a thing. What a blasphemy. You know, when you think about the beauty of the relationship between the Son and the Father, for instance, in John 17, in that high priestly prayer, what a thing to ask Jesus to do, to damage that relationship from eternity. Now, putting aside the veracity of the offer, the devil offers a shortcut to a future reign, but one one that would cut out the redemptive work that Christ came to do. It is glory without the cross. We must never ever sell out to a passing world. Even though people don't like to be called sinners, that's what we all are. And a Christless, crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. Here is this offer to Christ to go for glory and to cut out the cross. And you know, as the pressure is turned up in our culture, it's more and more tempting for some believers to, to go for the glory without the suffering, isn't it? Tell me the old, old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Don't sell out. Keep going in the face of opposition and temptation. Then Jesus said to him, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. There we go again. There we go again. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Again, we see Satan silencing the enemy by the deployment of the word of God. This time again, Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. And so a summary of that part would go like this, that Jesus helps us enormously with his clarity. The first temptation is not that the bread to eat is irrelevant, but that there is something more significant, and that is the life-giving Word of God. Secondly, we don't test God's care. We accept it by faith. Israel looked back on the Red Sea, and we look back to the cross, and therefore in all circumstances we must trust. So are we trusting or are we testing the Lord? And then the third temptation, are we like electrical current? Do we take the path of least resistance? Or are we worshiping and serving the Lord wholeheartedly for all that He is? And then lastly, there is the emergence of the kingdom. And we don't have time to park in this, but it's important to make the connection between what has happened in Jesus' temptation here and his defeat of Satan and what happens next. Because 
I don't know about your Bible, but certainly in mine, it, it mentions this as being the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why is this? It is because the strong man has been bound. Not all power has been removed, but this is a significant victory. So how does what happened relate to what follows? Why is the next part marked as the beginning of Christ's ministry in both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel? Well, in Mark 3, 22 to 30, there we find Jesus facing down some scribes who accuse him of operating in the power of the enemy, the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus responds to them that he is casting out demons and a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If he is working in the power of Satan, what is he doing casting out demons? Jesus is casting out demons because he has bound the strong man. Jesus has shown in his temptation that Satan was powerless to prevent the inbreaking of the kingdom through his word and his works. Jesus says... How can someone enter a strong man's house in Mark 3 and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what happened in the temptation. Jesus was demonstrating his power over the enemy. And this ought to bring the believer great joy and hope. Jesus has bound the strong man. Now he will plunder his house or his kingdom. This is the, the battle of two kingdoms. And this is what we see happening next. Look at verses 12 to 17. There is a declaration that is made. The fulfillment of Israel's prophecy. Verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. There's the hint there. This work is going to go further than Israel. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. Repent, that means to turn. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, this is a battle. Then the declaration is followed by the call of the disciples, 18 to 22. In the calling of the disciples, 18 to 22, Simon and Andrew are in Galilee and they're casting nets. And Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is the means by which the kingdom is going to grow. As God fills people with his Holy Spirit, calls them to himself and tells them to go into a lost world. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And these men, of course, we know from our Bibles, will be key players in the work of the kingdom. And then thirdly, there is the demonstration of Christ's power. Verse 23, as he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You see, these were sign miracles. 
significant in themselves for the people who were healed and released. But they were sign miracles pointing to a greater work that Jesus would do to heal us of the sickness of sin. And great crowds followed him, verse 25. From Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. They see the phenomena of people being healed and released from demonic oppression. They see the phenomena. We know what happened first. Jesus, our champion, has bound the strong man. And now his kingdom is being plundered. It's a powerful theme. And we say, well, why do things work out the way they do today? Well, Satan retains power. This was a set-piece struggle in which the Savior triumphed over Satan. And so over all the world, then and now, his house is still being plundered. And our task, therefore, is not to bind geographical spirits or go on prayer walks to claim ground. No, it is to speak the gospel. The strong man has already been bound by Jesus. It is to speak the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we see the big story of the Bible, echoes of Eden and Exodus, where we see the crying needs of salvation. Here we see the exemplar, Christ our champion, responding to these tests that he does magnificently, deploying the word of God, particularly from Deuteronomy. And then we see the emergence of Jesus' ministry in that declaration, a light has dawned, the calling of the first disciples and the demonstration of his power in sign miracles. But these things are linked to what happened before. These things are linked back to what happened in the desert. Jesus, our king and representative man prevails. Satan is silenced. The kingdom is coming. You see, we don't need no Superman. We need the God-man. A savior who speaks to the deepest need of the human heart, bringing forgiveness and relationship with God. And he did this by dying upon a cross, there bearing the sin of all who would come to him, repenting, believing, following. Always remember that Satan is strong, he is, but Jesus is stronger. He's stronger, never forget it. So what are our takeaways today? Well, if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, it is to feel that security that is in him, our champion, and our representative man. To model his example in the deployment of his word when we are tempted to sin. Psalm 119, verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus won this disciple, this crucial battle. He won this crucial battle, and in him, we also win through. When I was at primary school, we had a headmaster, and his name was Mr. Reese. 
and he was a Welshman. And guess what? He loved to sing. And he loved to teach us good hymns. I think he was a Christian. And I remember even as a young boy in primary school, he would teach us, I think his favorite was this, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onwards. Dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Shun evil companions. Bad language disdain. God's name hold in reverence. Nor take it in vain. Be thoughtful and earnest. Kind-hearted and true. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. To him that will cometh, God giveth a crown. Through faith we shall conquer, though often cast down. He who is our Savior, our strength will renew. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you. Comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' great victory in the wilderness. We thank you that he wins through where we fail, but that by faith in him, we win through. Thank you that he is our champion, and in him we trust. 